This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's ask his guidance on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for all that it means to us. We're thankful that you have given it to us and preserved it for us that we may have an accurate understanding of your plan for our lives, your plan of salvation, and that we may understand the realities of life in a universe that you created. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, that we might gain greater appreciation and understanding for what our Lord taught and see how it applies to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Today we are in verse 8. The Beatitudes are identified because they reflect certain core spiritual ethical values that should characterize those who are qualified to richly inherit the kingdom. Now, it's important to understand this. There's a lot of confusion. There's even confusion about uh, about these things from some people who I think ought to know better. I comment on that simply because I've seen a couple of comments here or there on uh, some of the uh, videos that have been posted. It indicates that there definitely is a still some confusion. goes back, and I understand this, probably there's more division. There, there's six or seven major interpretations of the of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Within those, there's probably 20 or 30 variants. And some people don't think consistently. And so it's very important to understand that we have to be consistent on certain things and consistently apply the uh, principles of literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutics. Fundamental to that is understanding that who is speaking. Secondly, to understand to whom they are speaking. And third, to understand, understand the context of what is being said. Now, that means that we understand, first of all, that Jesus is the one who's teaching. He is teaching his disciples. He, Even though there's a crowd that gathers around, he is not teaching the crowd. And the crowd might have unbelievers. And he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching them with reference to uh, discipleship and pre- preparing them for not only their future ministry during his life on the earth, but ultimately this will prepare them for after the time when he goes to be with the Lord. Now, that ha- go, go to heaven after the crucifixion, but that has not been uh, uh, identified yet. As far as they understand things, he is teaching about 
the kind of character that should be exemplified in the life of a citizen of the kingdom. They understood the kingdom from an Old Testament reference. There's, as I've said many, many times, but people tend to forget this, overlook it. It's so important. Jesus doesn't redefine the kingdom. John the Baptist came on the scene and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't redefine the kingdom from the Old Testament period. Jesus didn't redefine the kingdom, neither do the disciples. That means that they're talking about a literal geo, geographical, physical, economic, political kingdom on the earth centered in Jerusalem with a descendant of David upon the throne of David uh, in Jerusalem. They're not talking about a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual form of the kingdom, anything like that. And so what, what Jesus is teaching is that uh, to Israel, to the Jews, that the kingdom is near because he's the king, he's present, he's offering the kingdom to them. The kingdom is near, but if you want the kingdom to come, you have to change, you have to turn back to God. That goes back to Old Testament theology in Deuteronomy that there would come a time when Israel would disobey God, they would be scattered among the nations, but God would be true to his promises to Abraham and re- would restore them to the land and reestablish the kingdom. But the condition was that they would have to turn from their, from following the gods of the Gentiles and turn back to the one and only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the turning back to, to God was not simply a, or limited to a mental act of a reaffirmation of their devotion to uh, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it would be backed up by a change in their life, their relationship with God, their day-to-day uh, walk with God. This would transform their character. And so he's describing the kind of character that should be exhibited by those who inherit the kingdom, who live in the kingdom. Now, he's not describing how to get into the kingdom. Getting into the kingdom in this, in a soteriological sense, in the sense that we often talk about as simply being saved, but more precisely being justified or regenerate, simply means that we trust in Christ as Savior. At that instant, we are born into the family of God. Through regeneration, we're given a new identity. As church-age believers, we're given a new identity in Christ, and we're born again. We have a destiny. We will be present on the earth during the messianic kingdom. But the richness of our experience in the kingdom is identified by certain terms such as inheriting the kingdom. And even in this passage, the term entering the kingdom takes on a, a, a synonymous meanings to inheriting the kingdom. It has to do with our rewards uh, in the future, our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not on how to get into heaven soteriologically, but how the person who is destined to be in the kingdom should live today in order to develop his capacity for life and for righteousness so that he is prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in in the future. 
that this was given by the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of a contrast to the teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees teach, or teached, the Pharisees taught a superficial form of righteousness, a form of righteousness that was based on simply an external observance of ritual and following certain traditions that had been developed over the previous uh, four or five hundred years. If you remember from our study of the history of Israel, in 722 B.C., God was true to his promise to, to Israel, to the northern kingdom of Israel, that if they followed the gods of, of the Gentiles and disobeyed him, that the ultimate punishment would be that they would be removed from the land. That was fulfilled in 722 when the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrian Empire and the inhabitants, the Jewish inhabitants of the northern kingdom were resettled into various uh, areas of, of the east of uh, Iraq, Iran, what was at that time uh, identified as, um, as the Akkadian Empire and the uh, Assyrian Empire. Now, the southern kingdom went out under discipline in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians defeated them. When the Babylonians defeated the southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, and again, uh, much of the population was resettled. Some had fled prior to this and gone to Egypt. Others had fled and gone into areas of what we now know as modern Turkey. And so this began what has become to be known as the uh, diaspora, the scattering. It's from a Greek word meaning the dispersal of the Jews throughout throughout the world. Now, at the end of 70 years, which was the promise God had made to Jeremiah, that this, this time of captivity would last for 70 years, uh, the Babylonians were defeated by the, uh, by the Persians, and the Persians gave a mandate by Cyrus for the Jews that, that they could, were authorized to return to the land. A small group returned under, under Zerubbabel, and they began the process of reestablishing the temple. Now, over the coming centuries, there was a concern on the part of the religious leaders that Israel not, cre- not repeat the same sins that th- had caused the discipline to fall upon the nation uh, in 722 and 586. So starting in the period of the late 400s and into the 300s, they began to develop additional uh, regulations, what they viewed at that time as just uh, principles of life that would protect people from breaking the law of Moses. The law of Moses didn't have just Ten Commandments, had 613 commandments, but now the these various uh, religious teachers began to establish new rules and regulations that operated as sort of a fence around the original law. The idea was that if they would create this fence, if people wouldn't break through that fence, then, of course, they wouldn't inadvertently break the law, which was inside that fence. They created uh, these additional regulations that they treated as having the same authority or even greater authority than the Torah, the written law given to Moses. 
It was the belief that developed at this time among the rabbis that Moses was not only given the written law, he was given an oral law, and that this oral law, which is not documented anywhere in Scripture, that this oral law was passed down through the priests and the prophets and eventually the rabbis uh, over the centuries, and that became the basis for uh, the development of Second Temple Judaism and the theology of the Pharisees. And so they had added to Scripture many, many uh, hundreds of regulations that had nothing at all whatsoever to do with the original intent and purpose of the Mosaic Law. So they added many of these. They became codified uh, by the early 2nd century, approximately 100 years or so after Christ, by a Jewish rabbi known as Judah the Prince, Judah Hanasi. And that became known as the Mishnah. But the Mishnah, though it wasn't written down and organized until about 100 years after Christ, uh, it reflected the tradition of the fathers. Many times we'll see that phrase in Scripture. You'll see it in Paul, by Paul in Galatians and other places. The tradition of the fathers relates to these additional commandments and mandates that were added to the Mosaic Law during the period after the exile. This led to a system that had uh, created a religious system, a system of works, a system of superficial observance that dominated Jewish religious thought in the first century. This is what Jesus is going up against in Matthew chapter 5. He is talking about the uh, requirements of righteousness, what righteous living looks like. It's a matter of the heart. We'll talk about the meaning of that in a minute. It's an internal reality, not just following certain superficial external regulations. Last time we looked at Matthew 5, 7, which says, Blessed are the merciful, or happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This focused on that internal attitude of having mercy, and I focused on the fact that, that we saw this exhibited in a number of Old Testament passages where God is interested on, uh, in, in terms of an inner mental attitude, spiritual attitude, not just external observance. And so this is something that, uh, again, we see is that Jesus is, is, is going back to the Old Testament He's giving the uh, correct divine viewpoint interpretation of Old Testament teaching, and he's now applying it to the Jews of his generation with reference to this message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They not only need to have a change of mind, they also need to uh, have works. That is, they need to have obedience in their life that is consistent with that claim of repentance. I pointed out last time there are passages in the Old Testament that emphasize this inner attitude. Hosea 12.6. Hosea says, So you, by the help of your God, return. That's that same word that's used in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2. Return, observe mercy and justice. See, that's an inner mental attitude. And wait on your God continuously. In Micah 6.8. We read, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? See, not the external observance of the ritual of the law, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Hosea 6, 6, which is quoted twice in Matthew, the Lord says, I desire mercy 
and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This was stated in a little different way earlier in 1 Samuel 15:22, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of lambs. Now this I'm reviewing this because we have to keep those passages in mind as we go to the next beatitude, our text this morning, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, of course, as we've seen, is from the Greek word makarios, meaning happiness, a way to have true abiding happiness, not based on circumstances or things in this world that change, but on the eternal character of God, the immutable character of God, the immutable realities of God's word, how to have real happiness is based on being pure in heart. So we need to understand what this means to be pure in heart. Purity of heart in this context focuses on an internal spiritual integrity that is manifested in the inner life of the individual believer. In Matthew, we are going to begin here and see increasingly through this gospel the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees who are emphasizing an external rule-oriented Purity. Jesus rejects that external purity and focuses on the idea that this is to be an internal purity. For example, we have passages like Matthew 9.13 and Matthew 12.7, both of which quote from Hosea 6.6, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, and so he is looking at the heart and not on the outside. Now, one of the key passages that shows us this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is very important for us to look at. So I want you to turn towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 23. This is, this is sort of the apex of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees. It comes just prior to Jesus, um, Jesus' crucifixion, and he is announcing uh, various judgments on the Pharisees, and these are exemplified through these woes. I don't want to go through all of them. We don't have time. I just want to hit the high points of this passage because it's important for us to understand. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. They're hypocrites because they're emphasizing simply an, an external form of devotion to God, which is in direct contradiction to an in, the correct internal attitude. He says, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In other words, they have redefined uh, uh, giving, they've redefined uh, sacrifice so that it doesn't uh, reflect what God is looking for in terms of the heart. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faith. And so what I want you to notice here is from those passages I just quoted from uh, Malachi, from uh, Hosea, 
that, that what God is looking for, even in the Old Testament, is this internal focus on justice and righteousness and mercy and faith. In verse 24, Christ goes on uh, confronting them and says, Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The point that he is making is they're so concerned about the minutia of observing their own traditions that in the process of observing those, they're violating the whole intent of the law. In verse 25, we get to the main point I want to focus on. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. So the picture he's using is of a used bowl or used dish where you've already eaten and you have all sorts of food and uh, matter left in the dish, and all you do is pick it up and wipe off the outside of the dish, but you don't clean the inside of the dish. The analogy that he is making is that in the external religion of the Pharisees and numerous religious systems today, that's all they're doing is there is an external change, but there's no internal transformation, a transformation of the heart. So he goes on to say in verse 26, blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may be clean also. In other words, we have to be transformed from the inside out, not just externally, but we have to have an internal transformation that in, that then results in an external transformation. Notice it's not just a matter of the heart, but a matter of, of a heart shift that leads to an external shift. He's not saying, no, 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 externals don't matter, just the internal. He's saying the internal shift will necessarily result in some external shift. So clean the inside that the outside, the external observance, may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 27, for you are all like whitewashed tombs. Now he changes the imagery to to a grave, that the outside, the sepulcher above, uh, uh, on the grave is whitewashed, it's clean, it's white, it looks good, it's attractive, but inside is rottenness, inside is corruption, inside are dead men's bones. He said, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So in that last verse, he returns to the same theme that he has in in, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, that the righteousness that God is looking for for kingdom living is an internal righteousness, not an external righteousness. Now, in Matthew 5 through 7, he's not talking to people about how to get imputed righteousness. That's true. And he's talking to the Pharisees here, and he's talking to them. See, they don't understand righteousness, whether it's imputed or whether it's experiential. And that applies to both salvation and in terms of the spiritual life or sanctification. But the focus in Matthew 5 through 7 is not on how to have uh, imputed righteousness. It's not on how to get saved. It's how a saved person should live 
in preparation for the coming kingdom. So he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And the word that is used there for pure is the word katharos. Katharos is the same word that we have in it's the noun form, rather, of the verb that we have in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to notice that this is a word that is translated and used several times in Matthew 23, which we just read, where it talks about cleansing the inside of the cup so the outside will be clean as well. This is a term that is also used throughout the Old Testament law in reference to being qualified to serve God. There has to be cleansing. There's two categories of cleansing. There's positional cleansing that comes at salvation, but then there's ongoing experiential cleansing that takes place every time we we confess our sins. In the Old Testament ritual, Every time they came into the, into the uh, tabernacle or temple in order to worship God, there had to be a sin offering and confession for ritual cleansing before they could serve God. And so what Jesus is talking about here goes even beyond that because he's not talking about those who are simply getting cleansed at confession, but those who are staying in fellowship those who have reached a status of being pure in heart. Uh, it's always important to look at the whole phrase in these Beatitudes because he's talking about those who have uh, reached a, a level of what we would say they are staying in fellowship more of the time than less of the time. He's not talking about just people who get back in fellowship because there's a lot of people who they sin, they get back in fellowship, then they then they're sin, they're out of fellowship, they're 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 spiritual yo-yos, they're not staying in fellowship. But but we have these images in the New Testament where Jesus said, "You're to abide in me." Abide means to stay. You're to stay in me. You're to stay in fellowship. You're to walk by the Holy Spirit. You're not just supposed to uh, shift to the Holy Spirit and then shift back to the sin nature and just continue shifting back and forth. Uh, that's characteristic of an immature believer. But we're talking about exhibiting the qualities of a mature believer who is, has learned how to walk by the Holy Spirit. So the emphasis here is not simply on getting back into fellowship, but staying in fellowship, having a lifestyle that's based on an inner reality of ongoing fellowship with the Lord. This is what is emphasized here in contrast to the Pharisaical idea of simply a life that is governed by external uh, appearance. Now, the idea of heart here is also important. Heart is a term that refers to the inner life of an individual. The term heart, as it's used in both the Old Testament and New Testament, is a term that often refers to the thought life of a person, the intellectual life of a person, the thinking of a person. Often we think of heart in terms of emotion in our culture, but even though it's used in reference to emotion a few times, that's exceptional in both Old and New Testament. Primarily, it refers to the thought life of the individual. So it is, and sometimes it's simply an expression for the uh, inner life, the entirety of the inner life of a person. We have several passages that 
utilize heart in this way. For example, Matthew 5.28, and there's a lot of uses of this in Matthew in Jesus' teaching showing his emphasis on a heart reality, not an external reality, an inner reality, not an external reality. Matthew 5.28, also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says um, that if a man looks on a woman with lust, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's talking about heart attitudes. Matthew 6.21, also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart, that is there your thinking is also. And Matthew 9.4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think evil in your hearts? By the way, this is one of those central passages that tell us that you think in your heart. So it's not talking about the physical uh, um, uh, heart that pumps blood through your body. It in fact, in Scripture, it never refers to that. It always refers to uh, what's going on between your ears, not what's going on in your chest or in your gut. Uh, so Jesus says, you think evil in your hearts. Later, Matthew 12, 34 and 35, when he has a major confrontation with the Pharisees, he says to them that they are a brood of vipers, calling them the same thing John the Baptist called them. He says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it refers to the thought life that is the motive behind uh, what is said with the mouth. Matthew 12:35. a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. And then we get into Matthew 15. This is the real problem, that there's an extra. External worship without a heart change. These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. See, that's all external. This is a quote from Isaiah 29, 13, which I put on the screen just below it. But their heart is far from me. See, that's true for a lot of believers. It's also true for a lot of unbelievers. They're focusing on just externals, just a works religion, just if I go through the motions, I go through the ritual, I show up at church, I take notes, I have a lot of doctrinal notebooks. But but the Lord is saying, no, there's got to be a change that's internal that results in an external shift. In Isaiah 29, 13, we see that this emphasis on purity of heart is not something that Jesus is just pulling out of thin air but he is showing that what he is saying has its root in Old Testament teaching. In Isaiah 29:13, the Lord said, "Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me." They're just going through the motions. They're going through religious activities, but there's no internal dependence upon God. And he says, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of God. See, he, what he's saying is, fear, fear of him is respect. It's a pseudo-respect because it's taught by the commandments of men, not following the commandments of God. And so this is the issue. The issue is our heart attitude, which is the issue for the Christian life. After we're saved, the issue is our ongoing walk with the Lord. It demands not just external observance, but a shift in our thinking, a purity of heart that follows from confession, but also leads to a maximum time in fellowship where we are abiding in him. Only when we're abiding in Christ, only when we're walking by the Spirit, can we come to truly know God and to truly have 
intimate fellowship with God, both here and in the future in terms of our position, our roles and responsibilities in the future kingdom and on into the eternal state. There's a difference between trusting in Christ as Savior and truly knowing Christ or knowing God or seeing him. Seeing him is just not just walking by on the street and saying, Hi, how are you? I know who you are. You're Jesus. It has to do with intimate fellowship. And to wrap up this morning, I want to go to a passage in John 14 where we see this exemplified. John 14 occurs the night that Jesus first had a Passover with his disciples, and then they will leave from the upper room where they observed the the, the, uh, institution of the Lord's table, and he will uh, teach them. Uh, that night, and this is part of his instruction, is that he is about to go to heaven, but where he goes, uh, he will prepare a place for them and then return for them. That's in um, John 14, 1 through 3. Concluding with uh, the profound statement Jesus made that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's a clear statement that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Then he says to his disciples, now remember he's already cleansed the disciples by ejecting Judas, the unbeliever, from the crowd. So he's got 11 men in front of him who are all believers. They're already justified. They already have a secure destiny in heaven. And he says to these guys who have spent three years with him, listening to everything that he taught, and uh, having close fellowship with him in many ways, physical fellowship with him. And he says to them, if you had known me, wait a minute, don't these guys know him after three years? Yet they know him at a superficial level, but they don't have a rich fellowship with him. Uh, He he says, if you had known me, you wouldn't have known my father. What he's saying here is there's a, there are levels of intimacy and knowledge of Jesus and the father that are the result of an ongoing walk with him and growth to spiritual maturity. It says, from now on you know him and have seen him. He's indicating the fact that, it, that by having a relationship with Christ, you have a relationship with the Father. Then Philip says to him, this is such an important little interchange here. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. He hadn't gotten it yet. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, just show us the Father. We'll get it, but, but give us a little more. We don't have enough. Wait a minute, you've been with the Lord for three years. You don't have it yet. Is he saved? Yes. Is Philip going to heaven? Yes. Is he justified? Yes. But he's like many believers. He really doesn't have a clue yet. And Jesus looks at him and says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? See, that's the point Jesus is making. You can hang around church, you can take a lot of notes, but if you're not spending time in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, then you really aren't deepening your intimate relationship with the Lord. That's where Philip was. That's where the other guys were too. And then Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now the important thing about that verse is it uses that phraseology to see the Father. 
See, that phrase has to do not with justification. It has to do with a closer, intimate relationship with God as the result of spiritual growth. This is what Jesus is indicating in Matthew 5.8. Happy are the pure in heart. That is, those who are living consistently on the basis of the Word of God, walking closely in fellowship, for they shall see God. They shall have a closer intimacy with God. Seeing God in Matthew 5.8 isn't getting into heaven. Matthew 5.8 is talking about when we're in the kingdom, we will have closer fellowship and intimacy with the Lord than others do because others have not qualified through their spiritual life to a closer relationship with God in heaven. So the closeness and development of our relationship here on the earth will impact the closeness and intimacy of our fellowship when we are in heaven. Now, this is important to understand because as we build our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again and again is emphasizing that what we do with our spiritual life today is important for the quality, for the depth, for the richness that we will experience when we come with the Lord in the kingdom. It's not just about having righteousness to spend eternity in heaven. It's not just about justification and settling on the destiny. It's also about the quality and richness of that experience after we are with the Lord, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be challenged in our spiritual life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. The only way to enter heaven, to have eternal life, to be justified before you is to trust in Christ. At that instant that we trust in Christ, we are given or credited with Christ's righteousness so that you declare us justified, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done at the cross. When we're justified, our eternal destiny is secure. But, Father, after we're justified, the issue is our walk with you. The issue is growing to spiritual maturity. The issue is glorifying you. The issue is preparing ourselves for our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ as part of the bride of Christ in the future kingdom and on into eternity. So the challenge is before each of us. If we're not sure of our salvation, then we need to trust in Christ as Savior. If we have trusted in Christ as Savior, the issue is to determine how serious we are about preparing for our future rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray today that we might be challenged by these things and we might respond positively to this challenge, knowing that how we live today, the decisions we make today, not only impact us here and now, but they will impact us throughout eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.